Well, good morning, and I greet you from the Texas Panhandle. Uh, it's good to be here. This is not my first trip to Colorado, and so um, I do know that you have nicer weather than what I've experienced in the last 12 hours here. Driving up from the campsite last night to uh, Denver was uh, a harrowing experience. And so, anyway, uh, it really is. It's, it's great to be here and to be with you. Um, I loved getting to know the men that were at our men's conference uh, this last weekend. Uh, and um, I see you men spotted throughout here, a great group of uh, brothers. And so thank you for welcoming me and my son, Jay, into, where did he go? Oh, there he is. He's hiding. There you go. Um, and so thanks for uh, welcoming us and making us uh, feel a part of what uh, God is doing in your church. It, it's really an honor to be here. This church and the pastors at this church are men that I have known of and known and respected for a long time. I, now, I'm going to say this. Um, there's someone in here that I've known longer than anyone else in the room, um, even longer than, than my own son. When, when I was 14 years old, I'm going to do it again, Robert. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I came to Colorado um, to go to this camp called the Wilds Christian Camp. And there was a guy who worked there named Robert Alleman. And I remember seeing him. And, you know, when you're a kid, the camp director, he's like a really cool guy. And so and, and, and he is like he still is. That's that's. That that's not amazing to me. Maybe that's amazing to some of you. But um, so anyway, I have known who Mr. Alleman, as I um, uh, uh, called him the other day and then kind of got in trouble for doing that. Um, I, I've known him for, for quite a while. And then your pastors, Steve and Matt, um, I've known of them and, and uh, respected them for a long time. Matt and I were in, in school together um, years ago. And Kristen's dad, Uncle Fred, many of you know Uncle Fred, um, he and I were fellow pastors at Hampton Park Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina years ago. So he and I were um, ministered together down there. And then Ethan Weaver, where, where did he go? This is a big day. He's in the back. He's in the back. Um, I know who he is. Okay, so there. I know, I know the whole pastoral <laughs> staff. I met him today. I think, for, was that the first time? Have we met before? Okay, anyway, I know who, I know who Ethan is. Um, and so, anyway, I know, I know this church. And um, I'm excited by what God is doing here. Uh, I've talked with your pastors enough to know what they love and what they value and what they're seeking to do here uh, in the Denver area, here at Highlands Baptist Church, and you are being well cared for. You're being taught the Word of God wisely and well. And so I encourage you to throw your life into the local church. Um, I, I do what I do, not primarily because of the money that I make um, as a pastor. I do what I do because this is the thing that Jesus Christ is doing in the earth to advance his kingdom. The local church. This is what Jesus is doing. And so give your heart and soul and money and time and energies and prayer to Highlands Baptist Church and watch God reward you for that effort. Okay, let me encourage you to do that. Our passage this morning, we've already read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're just going to look at one verse together here this morning. It's my favorite verse in all of the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I'm going to read that verse one more time. And then I'll pray one more time and we'll dive in. Paul, right into the Corinthians, says this, For our sake, he, and that he is referring to God, for our sake, God made him, and that him is referring to Jesus. So, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. I mean, that sentence doesn't even make sense. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He who knew no sin, 
so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, please come and help us this morning. Spirit of God, please come and help us this morning. Help us to to see and to understand and to feel the way we should about this passage. Do what only you can do this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first thing I ever traded. When I was in fifth grade, I had a G.I. Joe man that I didn't want anymore. Anybody have G.I. Joe man? Guys, come on. Raise your hand. Yes, thank you. Very good. Yes, some of it. Don't raise your hand if you still have G.I. Joe man. But we had G.I. Joe man. And my friend Chris had a baseball bat that I wanted. And so Chris and I traded one G.I. Joe man for one baseball bat. Now, I think I got the better end of the trade on that deal. But that's not some kind of historic, monumental, it goes down in history as some kind of significant sort of trade. There are trades like that, though. Trades that have happened where it was such a significant trade that happened that everybody knows about it. Have you ever heard of a guy named Kyle McDonald and something called One Red Paperclip? Okay, I see a few heads nodding. So there was a guy named Kyle McDonald and he had one red paperclip and he went on the internet and he started trading for things that were bigger and better and bigger and better than his one red paperclip. And I forget how many trades later, Kyle owned a house. Without ever spending a dollar, he traded the red paper clip for, I think, an ink pen was the first thing, and the ink pen for something else. And he traded and traded and traded and traded up, 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 until finally he was the owner of a home, I think, in Canada. That's some pretty clever trading. That's some really good trading. There's some really bad trading that we're aware of as well, right? Like when the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. Um, yeah, that's, that's a bad trade. Oops. This morning we're going to talk about the best, worst trade ever. The best, worst trade ever. You say, well, is it the best trade ever or the worst trade ever? Yes, it is. It is both the best trade and the worst trade ever. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we're going to look at this passage together and we're going to identify several points from this passage that I think as we unpack it, um, we'll, we'll do this for us this morning, brothers and sisters. I, I don't think that anything I'm going to share with you this morning is going to be the first time you've ever heard any of this stuff. I think most of you have heard these truths before, but what I want to do for us this morning is a couple things. I want to warm your hearts with the good news of the gospel, and I want to remind you of the truth of the gospel on which you stand. I want you to leave here this morning encouraged and strengthened by a truth you probably have heard before, but that a truth that we need to hear over and over and over again. Point number one, first point as we look in this passage this morning, this trade, the best, worst trade ever, this trade is God's idea. This trade is God's idea. The end of verse 20 tells us who the he in verse 21 is. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. This, this passage is teaching us, this verse is teaching us that God is the one who came up with the idea of this trade that we're going to talk about this morning. 
reconciliation of God and man is God's idea. It's God's idea. The sinner surely cannot devise reconciliation because Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Pastor John MacArthur says this, Jesus did not go to the cross because fickle people turned on him, though they did. He did not go to the cross because demon-deceived false religious leaders plotted his death, though they did. He did not go to the cross because Judas betrayed him, though Judas did betray him. He did not die because an angry, unruly mob intimidated a Roman governor into sentencing him to crucifixion, though they did. Jesus went to the cross as the outworking of God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because in God's wisdom and in God's sovereignty, it was God's plan to bring you and me, sinners, back to himself through the sacrifice of his son. And this truth is throughout Scripture. Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 3.18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That, that passage still is one of those that's hard for me to read and believe. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan and will to send his son to die for you and for me to bring us back to himself. It was God's plan for Jesus to take our sins and then punish his own son in our place. And, and when we think about it, though, we know that that's, that's just the way it has to be. Imagine... Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And Eve is, is, is deceived by the tempter and she eats of this forbidden fruit and she gives it to Adam and he eats of it as well. And then they realize that they sinned and they realize they're naked and they run and they're hiding in the bushes and imagine them whispering back and forth to each other. Wow. I don't know what that was, but it feels really bad and something's not right. So what are we going to do? How are we going to make this right? What can we, oh, and then Adam says, I've got a plan. I know what we'll do. We'll do this. We'll talk to God when he comes to talk to us, and we'll tell him, how about this, God? How about you send the, the second person of the Trinity, your son, Jesus? Why don't you send him to die for us so that our sins can be taken care of and so that we can go back to be with you again? That, that, that's, that doesn't make sense, right? I mean, the person who has committed the crime doesn't get to be the one who steps back and says, now here's how all of this is going to be resolved. Adam and Eve don't get to say, okay, we've blown it, so here's how we're going to fix it. And in fact, brothers and sisters, we know the Bible says this, and we know this is true if we really know our own heart. The Scripture is very clear that because of our sinfulness, we actually didn't want to be reconciled. We didn't want God. Now, that is a humbling thing. To, that's a humbling pill to swallow. That's actually a really hard thing for us to believe and to understand. But Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, when you think about the word enemy, 
you probably get a mental picture in your mind. Someone who has a gun and it's pointed at you and they don't, they don't want you to invite them over for dinner. They, they don't want you to be kind and nice to them. They're your enemy. They would like to see you destroyed. They, want, they, they either want nothing to do with you or they want you to be destroyed. And here the Bible says that prior to our salvation, we were like enemies toward God. We had our guns pointed at him. We didn't want him. And so this passage, amongst many others in scriptures, is saying this. The fact that you can be brought back to God is because God, in his grace, his kindness and love, moved toward you. It was God's idea to have his son and you make a trade. So the first point is just that. This, this trade is God's idea. Point number two from this passage is this. Jesus gets my sin. Jesus gets my sin. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. He who knew no sin. Now, try to imagine someone who is sinless. It, it, for many of us, we can't even really begin to imagine that. But you might know someone who's really, really good, really, really nice. And you think, you know what, like, they're probably the closest thing I can think of to someone who is sinless. And you might, if you're like me, when you think of that person, you're actually a little bit annoyed. Like you sin thinking about their, how little they sin, right? Like, oh man, that, that lady, it just seems like she's always doing the right thing. And she's always asking me about my prayer request and telling me what she had, you know, what she did for her devotions that morning. And um, the, the family joke amongst our family is Grandma Zeller, who has passed, uh, passed on and, and uh, went to be with the Lord just a couple years ago. The family joke about Grandma Zeller was if anyone ever hears or sees her sin, try to get it on video or write it down or something because we're not sure that she really does. You might know someone like that who's really good, but the Bible makes it clear. The Bible makes it clear that all have sinned. There is no one who does not sin. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we hear that Jesus was made sin, this, this one who knew no sin, I think our inability to really struggle to understand this shows how finite our minds are. We can't even begin to comprehend human perfection. This morning at breakfast, I was talking with my son. We we're having breakfast together. And the Lord had convicted me about something that I had done yesterday in sin toward him. And I said, buddy, will you forgive me? What I said to you yesterday was unkind. It was hurtful. Please forgive me. So, I mean, here I am, a pastor, I'm getting ready to go preach to a bunch of people that I've never met before. And I, you know, want to fill on my spiritual A game and the Holy Spirit's going, you're a sinner, dude. Like you're messed up. Get this taken care of before you leave breakfast right now. Welcome to my world. Right. We, we know what it's like on our best days, right? Like on Sunday, I mean, I, I think Satan works overtime on Sunday morning prior to church, right? Like getting your family dressed in a vehicle and to the church location somehow suddenly becomes almost impossible and you turn into a demon. And, and it's, and it's kind of like, like it's Sunday. Like I actually got up this morning kind of eager to worship God and had some praise music on. And, and, and then like somehow like this person that I don't even recognize comes, comes out of me. Brothers and sisters, we, we are sinful and there was one who, who knew no sin. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. 
1 John 3, 5, in him there is no sin. The sacrifice needed to be perfect, and Jesus, the G- Jesus was perfect. And, and this one who knew no sin was made to be sin. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, helps us understand in, in what sense Christ was a sin offering. Jesus Christ was not a sinner, and he was not punished for any of his own sins. God imputed our sins to Christ is a big theological word that your pastors can explain to you later. Isaiah 53, 4 says this, Surely he has, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here God takes your sins and imputes them, gives them to Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem in his excellent commentary says this, God thought of your sins as belonging to Christ. And since God is the ultimate judge and the definer of what really is in the universe, when God thought of our sins as belonging to Christ, then in fact, they actually did belong to Christ. This does not mean that God thought that Christ had himself committed to sins or that Christ himself actually had a sinful nature, but rather that the guilt for our sins was thought of by God as belonging to Christ rather than to us. Now, we're in the deep end of the pool theologically here. But brothers and sisters, that deep end is necessary for your sins to be forgiven. Do you realize the seriousness of this? Jesus suffered physically. He was spiritually bearing sin. He was abandoned by his friends and his heavenly father. And then Jesus bore the wrath of God. So it wasn't, it wasn't the scourging or the cross or the nails or the nakedness or the crown of thorns or the plucked beard or the taunting soldiers or the mocking crowds that saved you from your sins. It was the fact that Jesus bore the furious, unbridled, poured out wrath of God. Have you ever seen your sin as bad as it is? So had you been the only had you been the only human to ever live, here's what it would have necessitated for your sins to be made right. God has to send Jesus and crucify Jesus to make you right again. That's that's how bad your sin is. So it's easy for me to look around and say, yeah, like that's the kind of sacrifice necessary for so and so or for the really bad people that live in other places in the world and they do really horrible, atrocious things. That's what's necessary for them. But brothers and sisters, this is what was necessary to make you right with God again. We sing the song, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Do you see your sin as as bad as it is? Jesus, brothers and sisters, gets your sin, but that's only half of the trade. That's only half of the trade. That's only half of the great exchange. The best, worst trade ever. That's a pretty bad end of the deal for Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, you and I get the good end of the deal. That brings us to point number three. I get Jesus' righteousness. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that, so that in him 
in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus Christ takes my sins and pays the penalty for my sins. And now at salvation, when I repent of my sins and put faith in Jesus Christ, I am given a righteousness that's not my own. Jesus pays for a sin that's not his own. And I am given a righteousness that is not my own. Just like Jesus was perfect and without sin, there are none of us who don't sin. All right. We all we all sin. See, God, God makes it clear. God makes it clear that that the only thing that gets you into heaven is perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness is what's necessary to get us into heaven. And I think that I think that this aspect of salvation is is what we often forget about. I was years ago, I was having a conversation um, with Brad Baum. I think, I think you guys probably know Brad. Um, Brad and I were having um, uh, a conversation together, and we were talking about the gospel and the good news of the gospel and the, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I said, there were some, some things that had been confusing me. And, and Brad stopped me and said, hold on a second, Jeremy. I wanna, I'm going to ask you a question. He, he asked me this question. He said, if Christ had come to earth, In one day as a fully mature man, just long enough to die for our sins, be raised and go back up into heaven. So let's say he comes down for like a four or five day period, right? And Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he's in the tomb and he's raised from the dead again. Would that have been enough to to secure your salvation, Jeremy? Would that have been sufficient? So fortunately, it was like, you know, it was a 50 50. It was a yes or no answer and so i had like 50 percent chance of getting it right right out of the gate which for me was helpful and encouraging but i got it wrong (laughs) i said well yeah right because i mean what we needed was for someone to come and to die for our sins and if jesus would have come and just died for our sins then and and then you know been raised and gone back into heaven then that would have been enough to secure for me salvation now i don't know if in your mind as i asked that question if you got the answer right or wrong but i got the answer wrong And, and brad said to me this he said jeremy Think about, think about this truth. Why did Jesus come and live for 33 years prior to his death? What was he doing? And again, I didn't know where he was going, so I was really tentative with him. I was like, well, instead of asking me, Brad, just tell me what you want me to know right now. Because I'm not, not feeling particularly smart after missing the 50-50 um, question. He said, Jeremy, Jesus Christ came to this earth as an infant and was born into this world. And for 33 years, here's what Jesus was doing. Prior to his death, for 33 years, Jesus was perfectly keeping the law of God. He was perfectly fulfilling the law of God. He was fulfilling all righteousness. So the command to honor your father and mother, Jesus was honoring his father and mother. The command to not lie, Jesus was telling the truth. The the commands regarding no lust, no adultery, Jesus was keeping all those laws perfectly. The laws, every single one of the laws in the scripture, Jesus Christ for 33 years was keeping them perfectly. He was fulfilling the law and the prophets. He was fulfilling the commandments of God. He was piling up righteousness so that at salvation, he takes your sin. But we see here, we actually get His righteousness and the righteousness isn't some vague, mystic idea, fluffy cloud idea of righteousness. He actually kept all the laws and he kept them perfectly so that at salvation, 
He gets your sins which are imputed to him. And you, brothers and sisters, get the righteousness of God now imputed to you. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for us, but that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life for us and that he died for us. Consider Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5. It says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So a thinking person reads that verse and goes, Okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I, I mean, like, I can try as hard as I want. I'm not going to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. How do I get that? If that's what's necessary to get me into heaven, how do I get it? My sins have been paid for because Jesus died on the cross, but how do I get this perfect as my heavenly father is perfect? Brothers and sisters, at salvation, you are given that righteousness. This truth is all throughout the scripture. The passage we're looking at here this morning, Romans chapter 4, verses 5 and following say this, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30 says he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. First Peter chapter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See you need righteousness. And you get that righteousness from the imputed righteousness of Christ. That, that comes to us in salvation. Okay. I need a couple, I need a couple of... Um, uh, a couple people to help me illustrate, or just one person to illustrate. Is, is Isaiah in here? Right there. You're right there. Dude, we even match. Come on up here. Come on up here. Okay. Come on up here. This is Isaiah. He, he and I got all the way up here. Turn around. Let everybody see you. He and I got to be friends this weekend at the men's retreat. You all know him. And what I'm getting ready to say, you will all know is absolutely true of him. Isaiah is a sinner. Okay. Yeah, I thought there might be some amens from the front row area here. Hey, look, she was taking a picture of us. Do you know her? Nope. That lady right there, she was taking Okay, she's taking a picture. Um, so, so Isaiah is going through life and he's sinning. And this is represented by a trash can. Okay, so he's going through life and it's as though he is, he is handcuffed to this trash can. And as he lives, he, he walks through life and he might do something kind of nice and kind of good occasionally. But for the most part, he's just going through life, filling up this trash can with sins. And then someday he dies and he stands before me. I'm God this morning. And I, I say, Isaiah, um, sorry, dude, you've got you've got that. And I don't I don't let that into heaven. No, no sin comes into heaven. So Isaiah, he's sorry, dude, tough luck. You don't get in. Okay. Now, this is not actually how the conversation will go. Um, but but so, so what Isaiah needs is he needs his trash to be taken away. He needs his trash to be taken away. So at salvation, when Isaiah calls upon the name of the Lord and Jesus Christ saves him, he repents of his sin and, and, um, 
and, uh, and puts his trust in Jesus Christ. What Jesus does is Jesus takes Isaiah's trash and he moves it as far away as, as the east is from the west. So that's, that's way far away over there now, okay? You can't even see that. You don't remember that his trash can is there. So now Isaiah is standing before me, and Isaiah says, hey, I want to come into heaven. And I say, okay, you've gotten rid of your trash. That's good, but there's actually something else that you need to get into heaven. You need righteousness. And Isaiah says, well, I lived my life only filling up a trash can full of sin, and I don't have any righteousness, so what do I do? So, so at salvation, here's what happens. At salvation, this is a robe of righteousness. Do you see this robe of righteousness? It might look like a blanket from Matt and Kristen's house, but it is not. It is a blanket. It is a robe of righteousness, okay? So here's what happens. Go get your trash can and come back here real quick. All right. So at salvation, here's what happens. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confuse the illustration a little bit. I'm going to be Jesus for a minute, okay? At salvation, here's what happens. At salvation, the righteousness of Christ, this white robe that completely envelops me, I am completely covered in righteousness. At salvation, the righteousness that I, Jesus Christ, have earned. I have lived for 33 years always keeping the law of God perfectly. At salvation, here's what happens. This righteousness is now given to Isaiah. Did he earn it? Are the works actually his? Well, because they've been imputed, yes. But they're not, he, didn't, he didn't actually earn it. There was nothing that he did that made me go, hey, you know what, I'll let you in because you're a nice guy, you're a hafler, and I'll give you righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is given to him, and his sins are taken, and Jesus Christ pays for them on the cross, and they're separated as far as the east is from the west. And so now when Isaiah comes and stands before God someday after he's died, and he stands before God, and God looks at him and says, I can let you into heaven. Why? Because, because you are in Christ. The, the righteousness that my son lived and earned has been given to you by faith, and that righteousness is now yours. It's been imputed to you. You can come into heaven because now you have the righteousness of Christ. Let's give Isaiah a hand. Good job. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Okay. Your blanket's right there. Thank you. A, a, an incredibly simple little object lesson, right? Nothing fancy. Um, I, I probably should work to make it even better. Um, every time I do it, I think, oh, I should change it, do, do, do something a little bit better. But he, brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Here's the point. In order for us to get into heaven, we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our sin will keep us from there, and not having righteousness will keep us from there. But at salvation, the best, worst trade takes place. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we become, we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel, brothers and sisters, these truths are no fad. These are truths that keep us, they encourage us, they strengthen our hearts on a daily basis. So, so I would say this, this isn't in my notes, but those, those who know this truth should be the happiest, humblest, and the holiest people on the planet. If you go through life kind of sour and discouraged and unhappy, it's because, at least one of the reasons, is because you're not realizing what's been done for you in Christ and the forgiveness that's yours in Christ. If you don't live a life that's full of humility, 
then you're not, you're not giving consideration to the truth that you were so bad that God killed his son to fix your problem. And if you aren't motivated to live a life that's full of holiness, then you're not living in light of this great news that is yours in Christ Jesus. So let me give you really briefly, I promise it'll be really briefly. I'm going to give you just seven points of, of so what? So what? So, so these things are true. So what? First of all, you are given a robe of righteousness. Number one, you're given a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns, adorns herself with jewels. You've been given a robe of righteousness. Number two, you are loved by God as much as he loves his son. These are just, these are just some points of application that, um, that have come to me through the years as I have considered this passage. I am loved by God as much as he loves his son. John seventeen twenty three. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Number three, God delights in me. For some of us, that's a really hard truth to get a hold of. To really believe that God actually looks at you and he is pleased with you and that he delights in you. And it's because of his son's righteousness. Number four, I fear no condemnation. Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number five, my position before God is secure. I am secure. Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The passage goes on to, to unpack that truth. We are secure before God. Number six, my, my prayers are heard. Because I come to God in Jesus' name, my prayers are heard. Romans eight thirty four. You can look that up later. And number seven, my motivation for sanctification is biblical. My motivation for sanctification is biblical. I want to do right. I want to grow. I want to pursue holiness because this is the God that has done this amazing work in me. This, brothers and sisters, is the best, worst trade ever. Don't ever grow cold to the truth of this great exchange. In the death of Christ on the cross, this wonderful trade happens. Some would consider it the worst trade in history, but God portrays it as the most glorious event in all of history. Those of us who have experienced this perfect pardon of God and imputation of his son's righteousness, we must see how unworthy we are. Brothers and sisters, see God's initiation and love in this. While we were sinners and enemies, he initiated this trade all for his glory. So let's thank God for sending the sinless bearer of sin to take in himself our sins and give us his righteousness. Would you bow your heads with me, please?